I tried for a great many hours this week to think of a way to communicate the feelings this case brought up through an opening. I thought about how I might communicate the scariest revelations this story offers up through a fictional monologue. I tried to do it, I really did, but every time it fell short. So instead, I am choosing to read you the closing paragraphs of Rachel Den Hollander's victim impact statement. Hers was the final of 156 statements read in a courtroom in January of 2018. Rachel began by asking, quote, how much is a little girl worth? And proceeded to deliver a masterful summation of one of the most stunningly horrible failures in the protection of innocent children that this country has ever seen. It only seems fitting to me to open with her words because without Rachel, this whole case would still be a secret and Larry would still be out there hurting little girls. Quote, I have been there for young gymnasts and helped them transform from awkward little girls to graceful, beautiful, confident athletes and taken joy in their success because I wanted what was best for them. And this is a joy you have cut yourself off from forever because your desire to help was nothing more than a facade for your desire to harm. I have lived the deep satisfaction of wrapping my small children up in my arms and making them feel safe and secure because I was safe. And this is a rich joy beyond what I can express. And you have cut yourself off from it because you were not safe. And I pity you for that. In losing the ability to call evil what it is without mitigation, without minimization, you have lost the ability to define and enjoy love and goodness. You have fashioned for yourself a prison that is far, far worse than any I could ever put you in, and I pity you for that. And this is also why, in many ways, Your Honor, the worst part of this process was each name. Each number who came forward to the police with each Jane Doe, I saw my little girls, and the little girls that were the little girls who walked into Larry's office that I could not save because no one wanted to listen. And while that is not my guilt, it is pain I still carry and pain I share with them. I cried for them, and with every tear that fell, I wondered who is going to find these little girls? Who is going to tell them how much they are worth, how valuable they are, how deserving of justice and protection? Who is going to tell these little girls what was done to them matters, that they are seen and valued, that they are not alone, and they are not unprotected. And I could not do that. But we are here now, and today that message can be sent with the sentence you hand down. You can communicate to all these little girls and to every predator, to every little girl or young woman who is watching how much a little girl is worth. I am asking that we leave this courtroom we leave knowing that when Larry was sexually aroused and gratified by our violation, when he enjoyed our suffering and took pleasure in our abuse, that it was evil and wrong. I ask that you hand down a sentence that tells us that everything that was done to us matters, that we are known, we are worth everything, worth the greatest protection the law can offer, the greatest measure of justice available. And to everyone who is watching, I ask the same question. How much is a little girl worth? 
Larry said in court that he hoped education and learning would happen from this tragedy, and I share that hope, and this is what we need to learn. Look around the courtroom. Remember what you have witnessed these past seven days. This is what it looks like when someone chooses to put their selfish desires above the safety and love for those around them, and let it be a warning to us all, and moving forward as a society. This is what it looks like when the adults in authority do not respond properly to disclosures of sexual assault. This is what it looks like when institutions create a culture where a predator can flourish unafraid and unabated. And this is what it looks like when people in authority refuse to listen, put friendships in front of the truth, fail to create or enforce proper policy, and fail to hold enablers accountable. This is what it looks like. It looks like a courtroom full of survivors who carry deep wounds. Women and girls who have banded together to fight for themselves because no one else would do it. Women and girls who carry scars that will never fully heal, but who have made the choice to place the guilt and shame on the only person to whom it belongs, the abuser. But may the horror expressed in this courtroom over the last seven days be motivation for anyone and everyone, no matter the context, to take responsibility if they have failed in protecting a child, to understand the incredible failures that led to this week and to do it better the next time. Judge Aquilina, I plead with you as you deliberate the sentence to give Larry. Send a message that these victims are worth everything. In order to meet both the goals of this court, I plead with you to impose the maximum sentence under the plea agreement because everything is what these survivors are worth. Thank you. No, Rachel. As former little girls and the mother of a little girl, we want to thank you. I'm Holly. I'm Leslie. And we would be dead. did do it. Hey, Leslie. Hey, Holly. <laughs> hey, Fiends. Um, so this week is obviously really heavy. I was, and I believe Leslie was also, greatly impacted by the research for this case. It put me back in a kind of a Ted Bundy headspace. Yeah. When is this country going to take little girls and women seriously? Because it sure feels like never. Yeah. I can't stand to watch them being brushed aside and not believed time and time again. And the breath of today's case knocked me off my feet more than a few times. Today we are, of course, talking about Larry Nassar and the USA Gymnastics sex abuse scandal. That's the only formal name of this case, though, because Nassar's abuse extends far beyond just elite gymnastics. Though the country only stood on its feet and listened when Olympians came forward. Mm. Nine former and current, current Olympians, to be exact. Mm -hmm. Including, arguably, the greatest athlete of all time, Simone Biles, who we have all talked about 
too much in the past few weeks. For sure. That's kind of what drew me to wanting to talk about this case because we don't know these women's journey. And yet the media is so eager to scrutinize and judge them. Like this woman said she couldn't compete in the Olympics. You don't just walk away from the Olympics. Right. There's a reason. And it was a known reason. Yeah. Like this news was already out. And this this wasn't even the reason. I mean, she no, had I know, other but I'm sure but, that it's oh it, yeah, there's and levels. Of course, people went on to ask her that in public. Oh, like, do you think Larry Nassar's abuse is what led to you like being unable to focus? And she was like, I don't, may, I don't know, maybe like. But anyway, that's what that's what to me re-angled the spotlight on this case. And I I hate to say it, but I knew that some of it happened, but I didn't didn't know the full extent of it right at all. Yeah, same here. In researching this episode, I watched two documentaries in addition to reading court documents, watching Larry's painful interrogation, and many victim impact statements. And a lot of our information today came from some of these documentaries. They were Athlete A, which you can watch on Netflix, and At the Heart of Gold, which is available on HBO Max or HBO Go or HBO Wow or HBO Amazing or whatever their (laughs) current platform is. Anyway, I'll provide links to them um, in the show notes. There's going to be a lot of links in this week's show notes just to get you guys ready. I will also provide links to Rachel Den Hollander's full and unedited victim impact statement. I urge you guys to read it. It is extremely powerful. And I mean, it, it will do something to your feelings. Yeah. But it's so important. Um, I'll also make sure to link the Indie Star articles that we reference. They made this possible. Without a small Indiana newspaper, none of us would ever know this would ha- this happened, and the reports would never have gone to court. Yeah, that was that was a crazy part of the story. That's a twist. Mm-hmm. So I'm going to put links to a couple things you can make donations to, also, and I think I'm going to add the Indie Star to that list because they're a small newspaper, and newspapers are not flush with money anymore. That's mm-hmm. not a thing. So um, I'll see if we can make donations to the Indie Star as well because they did some really great work and okay. some unbelievable journalism in this case. Uh, And I will put links to some of these things in our social media as well so that they're very accessible for everyone. Oh, man. (laughs) After this week, I feel completely drained. How drained? So drained. Mm. Sometimes a story can just take everything out of you. Do you know what I mean? I do, I do. It's hard to think of heading back to my keyboard after something this exhausting. Mm. I don't know how I'm going to do it. Leslie, is there anything you can think of that might... I don't know, bring me back to life? Well, I have learned about something new. Oh, oh, tell me. Yeah, so it's um, hot off the presses. Okay. A little dose of validation. (gasps) You know, I've heard of that before, and I really wanted to try it. And Mm -hmm. um, I think that our fiends can help us with that. Yeah, it's like the top 10 must-haves on Goop's blog. On the Goop's? (laughs) Look on the Goop's. It'll tell you to take some validation. Yes. (laughs) (laughs) That's right. Beans, if you want to recharge our batteries free of charge, you can head on over to Apple Podcasts and leave us a five-star rating and or a friendly review. It really is the only way to move this podcast forward. You could get us on a list, a good list, not the kind the FBI has definitely put me on for my search history. And if you want more We Would Be Dead in Your Life, you can support us on Patreon, where for just a small monthly donation, you can gain access to our special monthly mini-sodes. I think we might be doing one on... Tonight's topic, I'm not 100% sure yet, but you might get that. Some upcoming video content that we've talked about. We'll probably start on next week. We were not ready this week. 
<laughs> Our patrons only podcast 30 minute horror movies. The next Twilight is coming soon. My Netflix cannot stop suggesting it. <laughs> Just like you need to watch the next one. It's like the first one. Every time it's like, how about Twilight? Do uh-huh. you did you want to watch Twilight? Yeah, I think that's I think you want to watch right? New Moon. That's the that's mm-hmm. the next one. I know that because my Netflix won't stop talking about it. Are you still watching? How about Twilight? (laughs) Exactly. (laughs) You'll also get discounts at our merch store and on-air toast dedicated just to you and more. And if all of that is a little too much for you, you can simply share any of our social media posts to your social media. Share your favorite episode. Tell us when you're listening. Tell your friends. Tell your neighbors. Tell the teen who rings you out at McDonald's. Turn that shame burger into a shameless promotion burger. Then your friends and that visibly disinterested teen at McDonald's can become fiends and we can all hang out together. What's the teen's name? Keith. Keith, good name. Yeah. Classic. Parents went classic. Yeah. Got it. Also, there are more updates in our merch store this week. Um, If you buy one of our vaccination shirts, we will donate a portion of the proceeds to a COVID relief charity. And plus, you'll look really, really cool. Leslie did like a bang-up job on the design. Thank you. Love the statement. Love it in general. You look really cool in them. Uh, so there's that. And if you did buy one, please take your picture in it so we can show everyone how cute you look. We had a couple really cute pictures of our fiends this week yeah. in our new merch, and I love it. Keep them coming, please. And I think uh, I think that's all I have. Leslie, okay. do you have anything to add before we begin? No. No more Jerry's? No Jerry's. All right. All out of Jerry's. Fresh out of Jerry's. It's <laughs> our next merch. Fresh out of Jerry's. Do you think Keith was a good one? I wanted to say Dylan, but... No, that's too personal. It is, right? Mm-hmm. And that, well, also, we, like, work at a shore town, so I feel like that's not good across America. Probably not. I feel like Keith. I would have went for that or, like, Tyler. Or, Tyler, like... Tyler's a good one. Young Pat. boy name. Pat? That's yeah. not a young boy name. Yeah, it is. Okay. Patrick. I don't know a lot of young boys, I guess. Little Pete. <laughs> <laughs> All right, then. On with the show. (laughs) To get us out of that. On August 4th, 2016, a small Indiana newspaper called the Indy Star released an article on the USA Gymnastics Association and their failure to report a large amount of predatory coaches. It seemed that a great many gymnasts had suffered repeated sexual abuse at the hands of these coaches. These coaches would then leave the organization amicably if the situation got too public and be free to coach anywhere else they wanted to. This would give them access to a whole new group of vulnerable young girls. In this way, these predatory coaches silently traveled from gym to gym, repeating the same process until they had to move on, molesting hundreds and hundreds of young gymnasts without seeing a single consequence. It's like the Catholic priest. It is very much like that. They just, they don't, they just, you can leave here and then you're free to go wherever else you want. And they did. They're like, not my problem. The article reports that records show more than 50 coaches had been reported in the past 10 years. I believe it was 54 to be exact. And that Steve Penny, the president of the USAG, took all the report dossiers and filed them in a cabinet that he locked and never looked at again. It's so gross. This is, of course, against Indiana state laws, which stated that any allegations of child sexual abuse should be brought directly to the police. Do not pass go. Do not collect $200. Take it directly to the cops. Call the damn cops. 
the language is very clear. I want to make that point early and often. Failure to report is and has always been a crime. USAG, Michigan State University, and Twistar's gym just chose to ignore this fact. But we will get to the second two later. For now, let's just focus on the USAG. The Indy Star went on to report that without Steve Penny's locked chamber of secrets, they were still able to uncover, quote, four cases in which USAG was warned of suspected abuse by coaches but did not initiate a report to authorities. These coaches went on, according to police and court records, to abuse at least 14 underage gymnasts after the warnings. The following are the bullet points taken directly from this Indie Star article. Quote, USA Gymnastics received a detailed complaint in 2011 about Marvin Sharp, who was named 2010 National Women's Coach of the Year. It described inappropriate touching of minors and warned that he shouldn't be around children. Four years later, USA Gymnastics reported Sharp to police. Four years later. But only after it was confronted with another disturbing allegation about him. This one led to Sharp being accused of touching a gymnast's vagina, trimming her pubic hair, and taking sexually explicit pictures of her beginning when she was 12 years old shortly after he was charged in federal court in Indianapolis in 2015, he killed himself in jail. Didn't have to face any music. I don't care. I never care about that. I'm just like, get rid of them. I don't Yeah, I mean, I I totally see that side of it. I mean, I know it's more satisfying for their victims to actually see Mm -hmm. what happened because that's, I have no judgment on suicide Mm -hmm. in general. But in this specific circumstance, a lot of people will call it the coward's way out. Right. So, anyway, that's Marvin Sharp. Next, USA Gymnastics had compiled a thick file of complaints about Coach Mark Scheifelbein. I'm not sure I pronounced that correctly, but I don't give a shit. I sounds can, great. Yeah, I'll pronounce his name wrong all day long. Mark Schiffy, Schiffy Waffle. Who cares? Well, don't ruin waffles. Oh, I'm sorry. Schiffy shit. What was it, though? Schiffy Bomb? Is Scheifelbein? Oh, shit. <laughs> I'm just trying to ruin it. Okay. Anyway, they received a thick file of complaints about this coach years before he was charged with molesting a Tennessee girl when she was 10 years old. The girl's family contacted police in 2002. Scheifelbein penetrated her with his finger multiple times, according to police records. He also videotaped her exposed vagina for what he called, quote, training purposes, so he would know where not to touch her. <sighs> the girl's family was shocked to discover the history of complaints against Scheifelbein, which came to light only after prosecutors subpoenaed records from USA Gymnastics. A jury in Williamson County, Tennessee, convicted him in 2003 of seven counts of aggravated sexual battery and one count of aggravated sexual exploitation of a minor. He is serving a 36-year prison sentence. Next. USA Gymnastics had a sexual misconduct complaint file on James Bell at least five years before his 2003 arrest for molesting three young gymnasts in Rhode Island. It's unclear what allegations were contained in that file, because they hide everything, but Indy Star found prior police reports on Bell in Oregon. In 1990, an underage gymnast told police that Bell had climbed on top of her and told her he wanted to take off her pants. In 1991, a 10-year-old gymnast said Bell stuck his hand inside her shirt and pinched her breast. 
Bell wasn't charged and continued coaching until his former employer reported him to police in Middletown, Rhode Island. He went on the run in 2004 and wasn't rearrested until last year. Now, this came out in 2016. That makes it 2015, 11 years later. Bell pleaded guilty in December in Newport County, Rhode Island, to three counts of child molestation and is serving eight years in prison. Next. USA Gymnastics received at least four complaints about coach William McCabe as early as 1998. One gym owner warned the organization in 1998 that McCabe, quote, should be locked in a cage before someone is raped. USA Gymnastics never reported the allegations to police, and according to federal authorities, he began molesting an underage girl in 1999. McCabe continued to coach children for nearly seven more years until Lisa Ganser went to the FBI with concerns about emails to her then 11-year-old daughter. McCabe was charged with molesting gymnasts, secretly videotaping girls changing clothes, and posting their naked pictures on the internet. He pleaded guilty in 2006 in Savannah, Georgia, to federal charges of sexual exploitation of children and making false statements. He is serving a 30-year sentence. That's it. I know. I'm going to save all you guys the Google on these people real quick. They all look the same. Middle-aged, relatively white, relatively wealthy, also very white, average-looking guys who would immediately disappear in a shop right on any given Sunday. In fact, you could add Ted Bundy into this lineup and he would fit right in. Mm. This particular variety of man gets away with everything. But that isn't new information. Are they, like, all wearing white polos with swishy pants and, like, new balances? Yes, 100%. Some of them have shorts on because they're from hotter climates. Ah, khaki shorts. Yeah, like docker-type shorts, mm-hmm. obviously. Good call. The white shirt is universal. Yeah. <laughs> Ew, I hate that image. <laughs> oh. And, like, a slight, just, like, a small dad. Some of them stomach. have, like, a little dad go- going on. Yeah. Some of them are, like, clearly gymnastics yeah. coaches, so they work out all the time. Mm-hmm. The Indie Star also reached out to Steve Penny to ask if he wanted to do an interview, which of course he declined because he was still involved in an ongoing lawsuit about this very topic. Oh, interesting. Not a good look, Steve. Mm-mm. Mm-mm. He did, however, issue the following ridiculous statement. Quote, USA Gymnastics has a long and proactive history of developing policy to protect its athletes and will remain diligent in evaluating new and best practices which should be implemented. We recognize our leadership role is important and remain committed to working with the entire gymnastics community and other important partners to promote a safe and fun environment for children. Shove it up your ass, Steve. Uh, Congratulations, Steve. You managed to cram an award-winning amount of meaningless words into two completely meaningless sentences. Can anybody make a summary of that statement? You can. That's why they pay him the big bucks. Mm -hmm. It's just a bunch of three-syllable words jammed together until you're dizzy. It sounded important. That's the point. That's Mm -hmm. exactly, that's like the thesis statement here. Yep. This was Steve obviously skirting the issue entirely while looking not unlike one of those big green pigs from Angry Birds. Kind of has that face. Mm. But aside from the Angry Birds comparison, we will go on to see that this is exactly what this organization does time and time again. They try to impress with as many technical terms as possible, hoping it will hypnotize law enforcement and the general public into ignoring the whole thing on the basis that it is just too complicated to understand. Mm. Hmm. And for a great many years, it worked. 
After the Indie Star released its article, the story blew up. Ladies Gymnastics has long been a source of American national pride. We loved our Magnificent Seven and the Final Five. These women, let's be honest, girls. They're girls. These girls were heroes. They were the height of wholesome accomplishment, focus, and discipline with a sunny disposition to boot. They worked hard but loved every minute of it. Even when they were hurt, they kept going. They did it for their country and their team. Look at Carrie Strug. She was a national hero after winning a gold medal for the vault on a severely injured ankle. You can do it. We all chanted it afterwards for months and months. It was like a rally cry. Yeah. And now, now there are reports that this institution has been hiding an extremely dirty secret. That is front page news, no matter how you slice Mm -hmm. it. The Indie Star received a lot of phone calls in the wake of this first article, because obviously there's going to be more. Some of them were angry threats from people who thought it was slander. Some people just wanted to know more. But some people had their own story to tell. Phone calls began trickling in from retired gymnasts. First one, then two, then three, and the numbers steadily climbed as the days trickled on. But they weren't about coaches. They were all about the same man. A team doctor named Larry Nasser. The first call was from Rachel Den Hollander, whose statement I read in the opening. An ex-Minnesota gymnast who was not an elite gymnast either. She mm-hmm. was like a hobbyist. She started a little later in life. She did it because she loved it, but she wasn't like trying to be an Olympic champion or anything. And she had been sitting on her terrible story of sexual abuse for a great many years. Rachel is an attorney and an advocate for the prevention of childhood sexual abuse. She spoke publicly and educated large audiences on the dynamics of sexual abuse. Rachel saw the Indie Star's article as an opening, a crack in the facade that might allow her to finally seek the justice she and many others deserved. Rachel stated that she knew that, like even when it was first happening, she's like, I knew that this was wrong, and I knew that other girls were not being taken care of either. She just had like a very strong inkling very early on. Rachel emailed the Indie Star and received a response on August 15th, 2016. The response read, quote, Hi, Rachel. I'm Mark Alessia, one of the reporters who worked on the investigation of USA Gymnastics. I'm hoping to speak with you about Dr. Nassar. We can start off the record, and you can decide later what, if anything, you're okay with us publishing. Which, like, I like that. I know. Is he the one in the Netflix documentary, like, he's... He's, like, very serious but, like, surprised. Like, yes, he's, like, getting him. goofy in and a way. And he's the one that's like, we just kept getting phone calls. Yeah, it's, I really liked him guy. every time he popped up. Yeah, he's great. I just <laughs> thought that he opened with, like, you can tell us anything, and if you don't want us to report it, it's fine. Yeah. There's no, like, shysty journalism involved here, which is really nice and refreshing mm-hmm. after we've reported on so many terrible journalists. I think that's what's great about this newspaper so far because the people, the reporters involved were so caring. Oh, yeah, they really care about this topic. Mm -hmm. I'm jumping a little bit ahead, but while they clearly see a story in Larry Nassar, they also are like, but we want to come for USA Gymnastics because they let it happen. They didn't, like, let it die with this one guy. They really pursued all of it as a whole, which Mm -hmm. is admirable. And Rachel responded to this email from Mark Alessia with, quote, I am willing to do anything you need. I want this to end. And if it ever will, it will now when people are watching and maybe more willing to believe. And with that, a new story was off and running. 
After Rachel, they heard from Jessica Howard, a retired gold medalist with a very similar story. Next came Jamie Dancer, who chose to remain anonymous initially because she too had a fair amount of celebrity. Jamie was another former national team member and Olympic, Olympic bronze medal winner. Her story was mostly the same as the others, with one very important difference. Jamie had been abused by Larry internationally as he traveled with the Olympic team overseas. Now, this would prove to be very important later on as traveling out of the country with the intent to sexually abuse a minor is a federal crime. Mm. Yes. And if he did it to one of them, it is likely that he did it to others, which, of course, they'll later find out that he absolutely did. Jamie read the article and contacted a lawyer immediately. Her lawyer, John Manley, who I also love. I love this guy. The lawyer that took care of everything in civil court. Mm -hmm. He's wonderful. He contacted the Indie Star and said that they too had a story to tell. Calls and emails began to pile up and they were all the same. Larry Nassar, as a team doctor, would see these girls for treatment. Gymnastics is an incredibly physically taxing sport, so it isn't uncommon for elite-level gymnasts to need quite a bit of physical therapy and medical interventions. Right? This checks out so far. Sure. We're going to talk to Leslie about training in a few minutes, but just want to keep everything on the up and up. Larry was there to make sure the girls could keep competing, and they would see him often, some of them daily, some of them two, three, and four times daily. How common is that? Mm, well, actually, I think that might be pretty common if they're there all day. Some of them train for like seven hours a day, so. Yeah, you would see them because you would see them before practice, mm -hmm. and then you might see them uh, during a break, mm -hmm. and then you would probably see them after. So maybe... Like, seeing them twice is not abnormal. Okay. And then three is, like, if there is a big injury. Got it. Larry was very handsy with these girls, too, but this is not super uncommon with athletic trainers mm -hmm. either. After all, they have to manipulate muscles and tendons and joints in working order after they've been tested to their limits time and time again. But Larry, he always seemed to be a little too at ease with touching these girls especially when he got close to their private areas. Mm. There are a lot of videos of him, like, sliding into a girl's, like, pelvic area or into, like, her the crack of her butt or something and just, like, laughing it off like it's something everybody does. But, like, something something inside your gut when you see that should be like, nope, uh-uh. Mm -mm. You shouldn't be, like, in her crotch right now. That's not a thing. And, and a lot of lawyers comment on this. They're like, and, and and gymnastics coaches, actually, not just lawyers, they're like, that's not common. Right. They shouldn't be, like, so easy with getting into your private places. It shouldn't. No. And these are all videoed. I mean, we go to a gynecologist, and even that is very— They're not like, hey, hey, hey. No. And it's very, like, it's so procedural. Oh, absolutely. And you're always offered somebody else in the room and, like, all kinds of stuff. Yeah. Mm -hmm. But none of that is happening. And there's always like, here's one hand here, yep. and this is, I'm doing this first, uh -huh. now we're doing this, and then this happens. Informed <laughs> consent is a big thing, mm -hmm. of course. <laughs> but there's none of that there. It's very casual, very mm -hmm. conversational. He can be seen in a great many videos, as I said, I don't, I'm not going to post any of them. They're awful to watch. I hate that I had to see them. Yeah. They're awful. But he's, like I said, like manipulating their pelvis area. Not the actual, like what I'm going to get to, but like just mm -hmm. too close for comfort. And then as Larry would get on with his treatment, he would tell the girls that he needed to utilize internal manipulation or vaginal manipulation or sometimes pelvic floor physical therapy. 
He would explain that there were pressure points inside them that he needed to release as they would help to relieve the pain they were being treated for, which most often was lower back pain. But he used this for everything. One lawyer called it a catch-all. They could be there for arm pain or neck pain. He still needed to access it through a pressure point inside their vagina. Oh, and he needed to go at it with an ungloved, unlubricated hand. One, that would never happen that way. Nope. And two, I never learned anything close to that procedure. <laughs> I'll get to that procedure in a little bit. It's, it, it, we'll, we'll circle back around. Right. He's, he's a spin doctor of the highest order. Of course. I will remind you that these are also young girls, some as young as seven and eight. Ooh. Most of the girls who initially reported their experience um, said that their treatments began between 13 to 15, but it certainly did get younger. The older girls who knew what was going on, kind of, also reported Larry getting erections during their treatments, sometimes grunting and loosening his belt. Nope. Yep. And you would only know that if you were of an age to know that an erection happened. Right. Like, seven-year-old girls are not going to notice that's a thing. Yeah. Mostly, however, the girls had no idea what was happening to them because Larry was an accomplished con artist. He would explain their treatment in such complex medical terms that it sounded right. Larry treated Olympians, and his office was wallpapered with their pictures, pictures of him on the sidelines helping carry Strug off the floor, smiling with gold medalists and stretching gymnasts that were known the world over. But wait, there's worse. Larry was also extremely stealthy. He would perform these adjustments time and time again with the girl's parents in the room. I hate it, this part. Yep, or in a common area with more than, one, more than a few gymnasts wandering around next to them. Larry would be adjusting one part of these girls with his right hand, which would conceal what his left hand was doing, and his mm -hmm. left hand would be inside of them. The girls would think, well, if my mom or dad is here, this has to be all right. I'm, I mean, it must just be me feeling weird. Right. I shouldn't feel weird. This is my doctor. Right. My mom can see what's happening. Mm -hmm. We're fine. None of these parents knew what was happening. No. Not one. They thought, well, I mean, like, clearly this is, this is a medical procedure. It's uncomfortable. But they're uncomfortable a lot. Two of um, his previous victims describe this moment as one of them says, well, we were almost always uncomfortable. He was pushing on pressure points and stretching us and doing stuff that hurt. Mm -hmm. And you just had to kind of bear down and deal with it. Mm -hmm. And that's what gymnastics was. A lot of it, um, one gymnast's mother describes them being like pushed into like hyperextended splits. Right. Call it racking. Mm -hmm. And she was like, it's painful every time. It never is okay. The girls are like wincing in pain every time. And adults are putting the full force of their weight on these little girls' backs and hyperextending their legs into like over-exaggerated splits. I hate that. I do too. So this is, what we're, this is what their practice was for seven hours a day. So they were used to things hurting. So sometimes Larry didn't even explain it. He wasn't like, I'm going to do this now. He would just do it and then be like, does that hurt? Are you okay? And of course the girls would be like, no, it's fine. Because that's the conditioned response to right. everything. For and they also, I mean, most of these girls, again, I'll go back to it, has, have never gone to a gynecologist. No. So they're really probably the main doctor that they only see is Larry Nasser. Yes, 100%. So this is where they're learning mm -hmm. what proper consent is, which is none. This is you also their first sexual consent. experience. Right. Another gymnast went on to explain that... As gymnasts, they were used to being touched all the time. Mm -hmm. Their coaches touch them. The trainer touches them. Other coaches are touching them. They're being corrected and stretched and positioned. And it's just, you're like, 
a rag doll. They just get pulled in all directions. So someone someone touching them in an area that other kids might shy away from is not a red flag to someone who's used to their hips being moved and stuff. So it didn't register with them as much as it might have registered with a kid who nobody was touching. Of course. And again, it was all through the eyes of therapy. Yes, absolutely. And they would also leave his care feeling better because as one of his ex-patients described it, quote, his appointments were two hours long. The first half was genuine medical treatment and the second was sexual abuse. He had so cleverly explained and wrapped up violating these girls in completely incorrect medical terminology that a large majority of them did not even reconcile that they were abused until they read or heard the experiences of other gymnasts. And they said, oh no, that wasn't actually medically necessary. And then they had to reconcile it as adults again after they had buried it for years as kids. It's so horrible. It is. Larry had a system, and the system worked. Another one of the gymnasts also talked about how the whole time he was doing things, he was talking a mile a minute. He was like, how you doing today? How's your family? Everything all right? Oh, how's that test in school going? Did you you see that boy you like? All the while, he's like doing horrible things to them, but keeping a constant stream of conversation. So they're so confused, they can't even speak or think about anything. Their brain is thinking of conversation. Mm -hmm. And- there's, that wasn't coincidental. This man was very smart no, and course. knew how to get away with what he was doing. He's he's using techniques that we use as therapists. Well, doctors use it with with shots for kids. Of course, if you're it's, giving it's a kid a, technique. a shot, you're you're saying, "Hey, look over here, look over here. Tell me about school today. Was school right. good?" While you're giving them the shot, mm-hmm. it's the same thing. But generally, it's still a safe zone, and this mm-hmm. was not a safe zone. It's misdirection when it's I magic. It. Mm-hmm. <laughs> same kind of thing. But before we move forward, I'm sure a few of you are wondering what exactly a team doctor or trainer is supposed to do. Leslie has touched a little bit on this. And you went to college for this. Mm-hmm. Yes? Yeah. So tell us what, what does this typically look like? What are some treatments that an athlete would get in a training room? How is mm. this supposed to be? <laughs> sure. Okay. So, all right. Like, so at the beginning of practice or mm-hmm. a game, you would come in and – if anybody needed to get taped up, say they had like ankle injuries or if they were having muscle spasms or just like if they had an injury of yeah. sorts, they would come in and we would do whatever kind of therapy or manipulations were needed. There are a lot of videos of Larry taping inside a girl's like pelvic, like the where your hip joins your pelvis. He's right. putting tape there. It's very close to private areas. Yeah. So I guess... Okay, so I have done, like, groin wraps before, Mm -hmm. and those can be very invasive, but it's still very – again, so I I have had to do these on my peers, so Mm -hmm. guys that I was just at a party with on Saturday night. (laughs) Not awkward at all. No. (laughs) It's like, hey, Tyler. That would be Tyler. Now Tyler's here. (laughs) Welcome to the party. (laughs) Um, But, again, it would be very – you just get into a very professional stance and like you say everything that you need to be done. So if anything, especially with men, if you're getting close to their mm-hmm. their bits, <laughs> the genital regions, but the, if you get close to there, you're sometimes you're asking them like, okay, I'm going to, this is what's going to happen before I even touch them. Yeah. I tell them exactly what I'm about to do. One, so that they can even readjust if they need to. But then we just like. Can you move your balls real quick? Thanks. Yeah. Cool. <laughs> Thanks, Tyler. Yeah, thanks. thanks. <laughs> and then, and then you just 
you just kind of do it to very quick and mm. they're out. It's all very, it's all very quick. <laughs> Most of the things that happened. Yeah. Um, this was like putting on the tape and then like making sure it was secure and like getting in there. I don't know. This was, these were also little girls. Right, right. Um, and he's some a grown of the ass tape man. Jobs, I, I remember looking at some of the tape jobs that he had done and they weren't beneficial at all. They didn't look like throwing. anything. There are some, so like you have the kinesio tape, which yeah. is like that one piece of tape or it's like moleskin too. Yeah. Where you can put on things, which is nicer because, you know, when you're a gymnast, you don't want to have a wrap on. It's yeah. just going to roll up. Same thing with like swimmers. Mm-hmm. So you need something that is sweat proof basically or just easily movable and you don't feel it. But, and so there are ones to do like around the groin or for hips and things like that. But the tape jobs he was doing was, weren't They look like correct. they would come right off on the leotard. They were mostly on like her like, the line between her leotard and her skin. Yeah. Also, I would have let them put it on. There's no reason why I can't have I them that too. stick it if mm-hmm. it needed to go closer. There's no reason why I couldn't be like, okay, this is where it's going to go mm-hmm. and show it over my own pants mm-hmm. and then let them apply it and hold it so that I can pull and then let them smooth it out themselves. There's no reason I couldn't let them do it themselves. And a lot of, especially with athletic trainers, we do, it is a lot of, um, it's a lot of education and it's a lot of hands-on, but like back and forth. So like we want the athletes to know how to take care of themselves. So the more that they can do on their own, even with like being supervised is good, but. Larry did like the complete and total opposite of that. He wanted these girls to see him more, obviously. So he didn't want them to be able to care for themselves. There's one instance wherein one of the gymnasts in the HBO documentary talks about how, I think this was a twist stars, um, she had hurt her leg and she went in to see Larry. Larry taped it up, did some real awful shit to her and then said, you're fine, keep going. And it was very, very painful. It was her shin. And this happened for like a month's time. She kept going back to Larry like four times a day, tape it up, do his stuff. You're fine, you're fine, you're fine, you're fine. Larry, who's a doctor, got all the degrees and everything. Never sent her for an x-ray. Never sent her for any kind of, like, other consult. Just kept telling her she was fine and putting her back on the floor. Finally, she told her coach a month later, I can't, I can't do it anymore. It's too painful. It's like knives in my shin. And her coach said, get the fuck out of my gym then. And she went directly to an emergency room. And a month prior, she had shattered that bone in her shin. And she had been working on, like, it was, like, just a million little pieces all over the place. Right. Like, she had severely ruined her leg. And she had kept doing elite gymnastics on it for a month. Larry's a doctor. You know a broken bone. Right. You know a broken bone, but also, okay, so if an athlete came in to me and we did some of our special tests that we call them, yeah. and we had a idea that it might be broken, mm-hmm. the first thing you would do is send them for an x-ray or an MRI, depending on what it is. They would I'm sorry, in every account too, right. right? And they had the money for all of that, especially oh, yeah. with USA Gymnastics. That I don't know if they had anything right on site. I know at colleges that mm-hmm. I've worked for, they've had all of this stuff right on site. So you just send them over. And mm-hmm. within within a couple hours from them like hurting themselves, seeing the doctor, getting an x-ray or an MRI, yeah. and then like an hour later, they get the results back. And, like, we can know within that same day whether or not do they any just of- need to tape up. But you were supposed to just, like, let them stop yeah. and find out what's going on. Yeah, that, it makes me so mad because there's so many times where he's just like, yeah, it probably is shattered, but I'm just going to tape it up. 
and not even question it. And I guess that's why they liked him. That is why they liked him. And it's why gyms kept him coming back because he got the gymnast back on the floor the fastest. Mm. His turnaround, whatever they said, they'd be like, I need her back in like 10 minutes. He'd be like, yep, fine. She has one day to recover. No problem. She's fine. And were, were they fine most of the time? No, they were not. Right. Now, it's like there are levels of if you have like a sprain or a strain mm-hmm. or something like like a really bad bruise or hematoma or something, like, of course, you might be advised to how does it feel for you? Can you go back out there? Mm-hmm. This is what could happen. But most of the time, I mean, if it's a break, it's a break. You have to stop. Yep. <laughs> That speaks to this girl's strength, too. Like, she, for a month, she did, like, complicated floor routines Mm -hmm. and, like, vault stuff on a broken leg. Mm -hmm. Like, one of your big bones. Yeah. (sighs) And again, like, if this was, so this is during practices. Yeah. So during practices, like, I think that's one thing. You need to rest it. You need to figure out what's going on. Mm-hmm. And then you can assess from there. Mm-hmm. And, and some sometimes I think it's okay for the athlete to make their own decision on that if they want to compete or not. And then mm-hmm. the other times I do think it's important for the coaches or the organization to decide, like, no, we can't let you continue on that. But if it is in, like, a actual competition, then I sometimes allow for a little bit more if it, if it means something. Right. But sometimes, it. I mean, I know that the value of – becoming an Olympic gold medalist or sometimes I feel like it means something, but sometimes, sometimes it's not worth it. No. Oh, no. Most of the time it's not worth it. There are, if it could change your life significantly. Yeah. At the end of the day, if you're just like, even if I break this bone, but now my family is set for life. Yeah. Fine. Do, <laughs> if that's what you yeah. need to do. <laughs> Unless you're that Russian gymnast that got like the spinal injury and then flipped on the beam again. And then, and I, was it? She had a she had a previous injury, and then she had like an issue with the twisties or whatever, mm-hmm. and they made her compete because she had that like dissociation thing that Simone Biles had, and she flipped again on the beam, and she got a severe spinal injury, and she's paralyzed. Right, horrible. That ended her career and changed her entire life. Yeah, it's horrible. Yeah, so oh, it makes me so mad. I will add that pelvic floor physical therapy is a real thing, but it is not meant to treat muscle strain and it is never supposed to be performed on children. Pelvic floor therapy is targeted at the pelvic floor muscles, ligaments, and connective tissue, all of which work together to support the pelvic organs, contribute to sexual arousal and orgasm, and assist in bladder and bowel control. Hmm. So like, I don't know what you do for boys, but girls, you learn when you have to do Kegels, what your pelvic floor is. So if you have to like if you're peeing and you stop peeing for a second midstream, that's how you move your pelvic floor. That mm-hmm. thing. That's what he said he was adjusting in these little girls because they had lower back pain. Nope. Hard no. So this therapy is only performed by therapists also who have a special certification to do this. Mm-hmm. And you have to go into it consenting to this specific therapy for one of those reasons and It's only used to treat, here's what it treats, urinary incontinence, frequency and urgency, painful urination, bladder and bowel movements, fecal incontinence, painful sex or pain in the genital area, endometriosis, constipation, menopause menopause symptoms, vaginismus, pain in the pelvis, hip, abdomen, thigh or lower back, rectal pain, unexplained pain 
but in your vagina. Mm-hmm. Endometriosis, postpartum and pregnancy wellness, interstitial cystitis, pregnancy-related pain, and testicular pain. You will notice that none of these are lower back pain brought on by excessive gymnastics. The point I am making in explaining all of this is that Larry was extremely crafty. He used real therapy buzzwords and real terminology to hide sexual abuse, thereby pulling the wool over a lot of eyes with a very, very legitimate-sounding excuse for doing very, very horrible things. Larry did these horrible things to, no exaggeration, hundreds of gymnasts. The Michigan legal system reports that there could be as many as 500 victims. At last count, 265 women have gone on the record. Oh, my God. Mm-hmm. My other, so my other question about sure. Larry is his, so he's obviously a doctor, but Okay, so normally in, say, like the athletic training room sure. or, or the facility, there's generally several different kinds of people in there. So there might be an athletic trainer. There might be a physical therapist in there. Maybe they have a, a chiropractor. He, that's what he is. He's like an osteo specialist. Is that, I, that's what he is? Yes. I have his resume in here in a little bit. I'll read you exactly what his degrees are. Yeah, he's, he's not any of those things. He's not even a physical therapist. And get this, he didn't even have his license in Texas. Texas is where the Caroli Ranch is, which we will get into in a minute, which is where he treated all Olympic gymnasts. Okay. No license to treat there. Totally unlicensed in Texas. Licensed in Michigan. Okay. So most of those girls should have been seeing a physical therapist. Yes, ma'am. I'm so mad. Or a sports medicine doctor. I think he was, he might have also been that. Okay. He went to school for sports medicine, okay. but he certainly wasn't. But he specialized in yeah, osteo something. I, I, his his resume is coming. Okay, and we can circle back to it. Now you're probably thinking at this point that there is no way that 500 victims and possibly millions of incidences of sexual abuse could go unnoticed and unreported, no matter how well Larry explained himself. And you would be right. Larry was reported to USAG numerous times and met with police on more than one occasion. But the investigations all seem to die in the water thanks to the USAG's non-report policy. What a great policy. Mm -hmm. No, your ears do not deceive you. The USAG had a no-report policy when it came to sexual abuse. It is in writing. Careful writing, but writing nonetheless. This we would learn from the woman who was known for a long time as Athlete A of documentary fame, Maggie Nichols, whose story we will get to shortly. Now, I know I have left out quite a lot of information so far, and there are probably a lot of questions that everyone is angrily shouting at their phones right now, such as, this is women's gymnastics. Why weren't these girls offered a female doctor? And it's standard policy with women and children to have an additional medical professional in the room during all treatment. What happened to that? Mm -hmm. And if this is women's gymnastics, why are all the competitors children? And what has happened to these girls to keep them so silent? These are all very valid things to wonder about. But to answer them, we have to take a look at the history of elite women's gymnastics. As a team event, women's gymnastics entered the Olympics in 1928. The current women's program, all around an event finals on the vault, uneven bars, balance beam, and floor exercise, was introduced at the 1950 World Championships and at the 1952 Summer Olympics. Being as the Olympics go back to ancient Greece, it is fairly new. Mm Mm-hmm. The earliest champions in women's gymnastics were in their 20s and came from a background in ballet. In fact, like the first, I don't know, I don't know if I have it written down. 
first handful of gold medalists are all women that are like 22, 23. Mm-hmm. And one of and they went on to go into subsequent Olympics and compete. They would compete well into like their 30s. This, right. That's not how this originally was. It was called women's gymnastics because actual women competed in it. Um, but all of that would change in the 70s when Romania, well, I don't think he's Romanian, when Romania's coach, Bella Caroli, and his elite squad of Romanian child gymnasts came onto the scene. And they led in the 1976 Olympics by 14-year-old prodigy Nadia Colmenich. Nadia was always talked about for her sternness. Commentators also said that she was trained to smile. They said we had to teach her to smile when she was doing gymnastics because she just, by default, never smiles. Mm. She never smiled, they said, because she was very focused and all she thought about was her routines. Yep. A a 14-year-old who doesn't ever one-time smile or talk to anyone or make eye contact with anyone but her coach because she's focused. Right. And everyone was like, yes, I believe that. That's Mm -hmm. great. (laughs) They're like, you know how those those Romanians are. (laughs) That was always my, I told you that earlier. That was always my take. I was like, well, she didn't smile because she was Russian. Right? They just don't smile. Oh, that's how we saw it. That's that's what I was taught. I know. Nadia was the first gymnast to be awarded a perfect score in the Olympic Games. Perfect 10. And she's stunning. I mean, mm-hmm. I mean, her gymnastics were amazing. She's so cute, too. She's really cute and so sad. Mm-hmm. She's so pretty now, too. She is. Yeah. I think she's a little happier now. Yeah. <sighs> she loved to eat. I saw her smile in her photos. Bless. Yeah. Bella Caroli and his coaching partner and wife, Marta, began recruiting their gymnasts in preschool. They would, like, find them in school gym classes. Little tiny kids. They would look for children who were, quote, small, flexible, and fearless. I hate that the last one is fearless. Yeah. It's not strong. Well, I already said strong. Right? No, we said small. It's not strong. It's not determined. It's not athletic. It's fearless. Right. They were looking for children who weren't afraid to get hurt. Mm-hmm. But they wouldn't say <gasps> it that way. It would be more like children that were not afraid to just try new things or, or go that extra mile. Sure. You know? But also, yeah. if you're just going to dive bomb on something, mm-hmm. you might get hurt. And they want children who are not afraid of that. Oh, that would have been me. Yeah, you would have <laughs> broken so many limbs. Ugh. <laughs> Thank God you weren't an elite gymnast. I know. Would have been a bad scene. So then once they found these little children, these tiny little fearless soldiers, they would take total control over their lives and mold them into perfect gymnastics machines. The Romanians were live, hollow-eyed, non-smiling, technically perfect gymnasts. And the world was captivated. People loved Nadia Comaneci. They loved this, like, tiny, cute little girl who was, like, just flew through the air and got a perfect score, which was unheard of. And it's still kind of unheard of. You don't mm-hmm. get a 10. That's crazy. Mm-hmm. The Romanians were laser-focused. They never spoke to one another at meets, smiled, or laughed, or made eye contact. Mm-hmm. The world thought that they were quiet and intense because they were focused on success. They're like, oh, man, that's why they're winning medals. Look at them. They're not right. distracted. But other Olympic gymnasts saw it differently. They saw the Romanians being quiet because they were afraid. Mm. Other Olympic gymnastics later on were quoted as being like, those girls were terrified. You could see it. They, they couldn't even look at people. They couldn't. They were so afraid of their surroundings that they just, all they could focus on was what they had to do. But the public loved them. 
They succeeded wildly, and a new standard was suddenly set. Everyone wanted young little flying fairies, or little pixies is what they called them, Mm. and the Corollis were the ones to turn them out. Now, all of this took hold at the perfect place in time. I'm not sure it would have worked had had the world known better or less. Like, little Victorian adult children delivering perfectly executed moves might not have been as much to raise an eyebrow out. They might have been like, yeah, you're supposed to. You're just supposed to be able to do stuff perfectly. Mm-hmm. And when we knew more, people might say, like, you're going to hurt that child. That's too much for a kid to do. But right here, it feels to me like there was a sweet spot. So why did it hit so well in the 70s? Leslie, why don't, why don't you tell us a little bit about this time period? Sure. Maybe we'll be able to figure it out. Mm, maybe. maybe not. Either way is fine. Maybe. Well, okay, so the six, in the 60s, we started, like, the – like the feminist movements mm-hmm. and the 70s were where they were really like going with it strong. Mm-hmm. Um, and this is where we got a lot more like women were working more. They were being paid equally or trying to be. They were getting closer to it. The bill had passed <laughs> whether or not they actually say, were. <laughs> we still don't get paid equally. What are you talking about? No, but it, it was there. Um, <laughs> we were trying. We were trying. <laughs> oh, no. Women were on television in actual, like, interesting roles and not, like, leave it to beaver style or. <laughs> <laughs> so, like, these little girls, like, yeah, we should let them kill themselves in a gym. It just was. Little girl power. Yeah, it was just, it was a time where women were feeling strong and fearless. Oh, that word mm. is awful now. But America was also celebrating its 200th birthday All right. of independence from the British rule. So we were just like, we got this. <laughs> Look at those Romanians. We want to be yes. like them. <laughs> All this freedom is terrible. <laughs> so not only were there the Summer Olympics, but there were also the Winter Olympics. Mm. This is when we did everything at the same time. Oh, I love ice skating. I know. So the Winter Olympics began in February, and they were supposed to be in Colorado, but citizens of the state voted against using any public funds to support the games, which caused Colorado to be unable to properly prepare for the games. Oh, no. And that's when Innsbruck, um, Austria, stepped in to host because they had hosted only 12 years prior and were basically, like, set up already. So that's why it was well, that's there. not fair. You don't get another one. Well, but they were already ready yeah, for I it. Yeah, I guess the Olympics cost so much money. But that's what I thought it was kind of funny because I always thought like, oh, like, why can't we always have the Olympics? And then like this town in Colorado was like, we don't. We can't we have don't the Olympics. To <laughs> get out of here. Get I don't want here. your bullshit Olympics. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's so expensive and wasteful and horrible. Oh, it was terrible. So, um, okay. So women were wearing tunics with pants. Uh-huh. Lots of denim. Lots of denim. V-neck dresses and shirts. Pattern jackets and sporting a blazer, blazer, both at work and casually. Mm. They were, like, really feeling themselves. Mm. They had wooden bracelets, checkbook clutches, because they can, you know, keep their own money now. Because they get a checkbook. Yes. Okay. <laughs> they got ankle straps and mid-range boots. were very popular. And then stylish men were either wearing a corduroy suit, a leather jacket like the fans, mm. or if you were an athlete or younger, a rugby pullover, which I do love a rugby uh, pullover. Yeah. Phaser watches were also a must-have. Phaser watches? Yeah, I don't know. They just... What's that? It looked like a digital watch. Oh, okay. It was like Phaser 2000. <laughs> <laughs> so cool. <laughs> Tonight's the Night by Rod Stewart was the most popular song. Happy Days was the most popular TV show, along with Carol Burnett's show. So, mm-hmm. like, another woman on TV having her show. There you go. MASH and Three's Company were big. 
Um, All the President's Men, Rocky, and A Star is Born were the most popular film. Not the Lady Gaga Star is Born. No. But did you know? Probably not. That Sylvester Stallone wrote the script of Rocky in three and a half days by hand with a big pen. I didn't. Yeah, it's it's what saved his career. He was just oh, like, man. he couldn't get any roles. It was terrible. He thought he was done. So he wrote his own role. And then he went to a callback and the people didn't really like him. He was just like, well, listen, I got this, I got this story that I'm working on. <laughs> that worked for exactly no other people ever in the history of the world. <laughs> and they ended up funding it. And at first they didn't want him to play it, but then they let him. And then they used like 30% of what he wrote. <laughs> And what then, a comedy of errors. Oh, no. I know. And he just, like, they gave him some money for it. And then he had to use, like, family members and friends and other people to, like, make it happen. And they came in under budget. So he was, like, great. And then it, like, made so much money. Now he still has a career. Yeah. Isn't that wild? He wrote his own part. That's crazy. I mean, that's what I do. But anyway. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> I know. I was thinking about you. I'm like, <laughs> if you can't book a role, write your own part. That I totally agree with that. Mm-hmm. People are not casting you the way you want to be cast. Write your own fucking thing. Yep. He did it. Like Sylvester pen. Stallone. <laughs> What a weird hero. In the- I know. <laughs> you know what? Take him where you can get him. Yep. But also what I think is important is that Rocky was a film that was then and everybody was super amped up about And an that. athlete. Yeah. And that's like a comeback story. Mm-hmm. Um, all right. So Mary Tyler Moore Show won its second straight Emmy for Outstanding Comedy Series. So they made it after doing all. it. VHS tapes were introduced to compete with Sony's Betamax system. The VHSs became more popular. Everyone agreed that the Betamax was by far superior. But they were like, we just like this other one Oh, better. no. They're like, oh, this weird. one's better, but we're going to let it go. Yeah. I wonder if that had to do with, like, pricing. I don't Maybe. know. Maybe. NASA unveiled the first space shuttle, the Enterprise. Mm-hmm. So I wonder if this is also part of it. There was a lot of space stuff happening this year, so... The fact that we were trying to be the first to get everything done. Yeah. That we could have been watching the Russians or the Romanians. Yeah, Athlete A talks a lot about how the Cold War influenced their attitudes Mm -hmm. on, like, discipline. Oh, that's right. Mm -hmm. All of them, like, you don't know, joyless, constant work. Right. And portraying themselves as the best. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, you're right. That could definitely have done it. And then, but as for America, we wanted to take that from them. Of course we did. Yeah. So before 1976, Black History Month was Negro History Week, which was created in 1926 with the hope that this would be eliminated once Black history would become fundamental to American history. Ooh. Yeah. So we're still working on that. Yeah. 1928 is like, I'm so disappointed in all of you. (laughs) Terrible. Um, Richard Dawkins coined the term, coined the word meme, in his 1976 book, The Selfish Gene. What the hell? Meme is that old? Yeah. OMG, Winston Churchill. OMG. <laughs> <laughs> he created the concept as an analogy to the gene, a small unit that spreads and replicates for its own survival. He wanted to show evolution doesn't only apply to biological entities. Okay. Uh, Frontier, Frontier Airlines hired the U.S.'s first female pilot captain, Emily Howell Warner. All right. Awesome. In 1976, Meryl Streep was a badass bitch. Still she, is. <laughs> she auditioned for the lead role of King Kong, but producers Dino De Laurentiis commented to his son in Italian, Che Bruta, I think that's right, or why do you bring me this ugly thing? 
Yeah. To which Meryl Streep responded in perfect Italian, I understand what you're saying. I'm sorry I'm not beautiful enough to be in King Kong. Also, like, Meryl Streep, still really beautiful. Mm-hmm. 1976 Meryl Streep? So cute. Way more beautiful than, like, anyone I've ever I run know. into in my life. She's, I think who Jessica Lange got that part, I think. Maybe. Yeah. I they think. look close to the same. Close to the same. That's Pro- crazy. Well, yeah, but that's probably why she was in there for that role. <laughs> then the they were like, you're a monster. <laughs> Horrible. But the son, so the son of this producer, he brought in Meryl Streep for this role because he saw her in a play and oh. thought she was wonderful. And he was so excited to be bringing in this new actress. And thought his dad was, dad was going to be so proud of him. Nice. Yeah. Okay. Two more things, right? Cool, cool, cool. During the Summer Olympics, Japanese gymnast, so another a male, ah. Shun Fujimoto broke his knee but didn't tell anyone and performed perfectly despite his injury, winning his team a gold medal. So it's so not it's boy just gymnasts gymnast. too. Mm-hmm. We don't talk about them today, but I'm sure they have their own saga. But, well, it's not just gymnasts. This is, this is an athletic mentality. It's, this is how athletes think. This is how or we how were trained. to think. Right, this is how we're trained to think. There's a reason for that, yeah. which we will get into soon. Margaret Thompson was the first woman to win an Olympic gold medal in shooting in a shooting sport, and she won silver. But get this. She had tied with the gold medal winner, Lanny, I think it's Lanny Bassam, so a male. But the Olympic Committee refused a shoot-off and just decided that she would be silver because she's a female. <gasps> so during the medal-giving ceremony, Lanny pulled Thompson onto the gold medal platform with him. Oh, I like him. I know. Isn't that stupid? Yeah, that's Give really stupid. Off. Yeah, shoot it off. What are you doing? More viewings, you know? Yeah, seriously. Crazy. But yeah, so that was 1976. Okay, so it was kind of a contentious time of people proving themselves. Mm-hmm. I could see that. And I could also see how, like, a very young, accomplished gymnast would be something people would latch on to. Yep. Mm-hmm. Does that make sense? And it was it was just new. There was all these new things happening in the 70s. Mm-hmm. And anything, and I think... I mean, I think that it would have been exciting for women to see this and see a young girl yeah. accomplishing this without realizing the ramifications of it. Yeah. Yeah, no, I agree. Younger female gymnasts slowly became the norm as the sport's difficulty increased. So it's getting harder and the athletes are getting younger. Smaller, lighter girls generally were better at the more challenging acrobatic elements that were required by the new code of points. Not to mention the fact that shiny-faced children make great mascots. Mm-hmm. The 58th Congress of the FIG held in July 1980, just before the Olympics, decided to raise the minimum age for senior international competition from 14 to 15. So after Nadia Comaneci won, they were like, hmm, that's too young. So they put it up one year, which was kind of a challenge for Bella Caroli as and his wife, because they preferred very, very young gymnasts. They liked gymnasts who were prepubescent. They wanted no hips, no breasts, no periods, no, and they wanted them to be very short and controllable. Children are more easier, are more easy, are easier to control. Mm-hmm. So, you know, older is difficult. But their solution to this problem, because they had complete control over these girls, was to prevent them from entering puberty through a combination of constant exercise and starvation. So horrible. They knew they were doing that. They were like, Mm. if we don't give them enough calories and we push them to work past their limits, they will not enter puberty because their body can't do it. Now, is this like a known technique or is this something that we learn later? I think that's something he discovered by trial and error. 
Okay. And then it was a known technique. It was something they did on purpose. Oh. He, he says he did it. But, like, parents were just like, yes, stoked no. my child. No. Parents didn't know that was happening. Okay. But he knew he was I guess that's it. what I mean. Like, oh, yeah. No, parents didn't know they were keeping their kids like, from maturing. So your daughter's about to join the USA Gymnastics, no. and this is, this is what we're going to do. I say no, but there very well could have been some parents that were like, yeah, hold my kid off. I'm going to get him birth control That's real, true. real young Yeah, what do you need me? What do you need me to do? Yeah, because you can do it other ways. Mm-hmm. And some people might have chosen to do it. But yeah, this is what – that's what they did. They're like, we want to keep them small so we'll make sure that they don't turn into women. We'll keep them girls. And also, it became like – because they were so popular, it became fashionable to look kind of like a kid. Right. That like infantilizing women has always been popular, but it was very popular because of these girls mm. too. So in 1981, Bella and Marta Caroli defected to the United States to the absolute delight of the USAG. They bought a gym in Houston, and in the 1984 Olympics, Bella Caroli entered the American scene as Mary Lou Retton's independent coach. Mary Lou Retton, very famous gymnast. He was an intense presence. There's a lot of videos of him on the sideline like, Mary Lou, you can do this. (laughs) The way he says her name is really funny. After Mary Lou Retton's success in the 1984 Olympics, Caroli purchased the Caroli Ranch in Texas also, which became a training facility for the U.S. national team. Now, um, Bella Caroli also, like, wanted to live in Texas because he was obsessed with being a cowboy. He, like, really liked the American image of being, like, on a ranch with a horse and a hat, and I listened to the country music. I am American. Like, that was his thing. Yeah. So the camp... The Crowley Ranch is located in a remote and rural part of Texas. You um, you have to really drive into the woods for a long time to get to it. It's not accessible. It is surrounded by dense woods and murky swamps. And one um, one of the representatives for the girls was like, "It's it's all bugs and like high weeds. It's not maintained. It's it, you have to like wade through wilderness to get to it." And of course, there's there's a reason for that. Parents. Visitors and anyone not on the Caroli staff were not allowed on the property. I have a big, anytime I hear like a name with a ranch after, Mm -hmm. I have like a red flag. Yeah, you're not wrong. (laughs) No. Gymnasts were also not allowed phone calls or any outside influences. And then as technology developed, they weren't allowed their cell phones or internet access. They were just really cut off. This should never be allowed for children. No. No. If someone said to me, you have to drop your child off at the property line and you're not allowed to come onto the property at all and we'll just take them for weeks at a time every month and you can't know what we're doing, I'd be like, no, you Mm -hmm. don't get my child. If Mm -hmm. I'm not allowed to come on the property, you're hiding something from me. Yep. Otherwise, why am I not allowed? They'd be like, well, you're a distraction. That was our thing. Parents are a distraction. Anybody else is a distraction. They have to be laser focused. But as a parent... I would be like, mm, 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 mm. Mm-hmm. that's not why. I know they do that with a lot of. There's like religious camps. There's like hiding you something, know, going to like the Catskills, hiding for something. The summer. Yeah, it's like, and they can't contact at all, and they're oh, God, that means you're terrible. hiding something. Yeah. When I went away, so we you talked about Stokes that one. Oh yes, episode, I was allowed to like camp. talk to people though. Yeah. So when we went away to our weekly camp like that. We had our, I mean, at that point, we did have a cell phone. I think, um, yeah, because I was like in seventh or eighth grade. So I think we had some sort of device. But, you know, we were asked not to use it like any normal time. Like, hey, we're camping, we're doing this. Yeah, if you're like involved in an activity. But when you're back in your room, like I could call my mom. Yeah. At any time, I could go to the office if I had to. Yeah. They never stopped 
<laughs> it sounds like I called my mom all the time. She was there with me, so I didn't need to. <laughs> I think there was one time she left and I told her to come back. Oh, <laughs> I didn't do well going That's, away. I had things. a hard time with it too, but like I was at a point in time where there wasn't really that technology yet. Mm-hmm. I could call them from a payphone. If I ever said I really need to talk to my mom, they'd be like, "Yeah, comes to the office." Of course, we'll yeah, they, you can go to the office anytime. They live in fine. They, there would have been no hesitation in that. They let you do that at school if you oh, have yeah. to call. Yeah. You know. So if you don't have a method of transparency, you're hiding something, in my opinion. Yeah. At any age, with any people. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, gymnasts are not allowed any phone calls outside contact with the world. They are completely isolated and train at least seven hours a day. But Bella made winners, and the United States wanted winners. So, as sketchy as all of that may seem, they went along with it. Bella and Marta also had very specific methods. Bella stated that he needed complete control over his gymnasts, so he would control their food intake, weigh them every single day first thing in the morning, and scream body-shaming insults like fat pig and useless cow at them over and over and over again. A lot of these gymnasts ended up with severe eating disorders because of Bella Caroli. But again, they had that because, one, they wouldn't enter puberty, and two, if you want to control somebody, the best way to do it is to keep them real weak. Of course. best way to keep someone real weak is to overwork them, deprive them of food, and sleep. Right. Both of which they controlled. Mm-hmm. They would control when lights out were. They would control when they woke up in the morning. And I guarantee you it wasn't enough rest. He would also famously deny the girls food while they were at the ranch, but sit and eat steak dinners in front of them. Yes. Yep. And then there was the physical violence. Both Be- Bella and Marta would smack the girls to get them to perform better. And I don't mean like any kind of smacking is bad, but I don't mean like little. I mean like they would crack them real hard across the face. To, if they like did something wrong, they'd smack them in the face. And their, one of their fellow coaches said that at the end of the day, a lot of the little girls would have impressions from their, their wedding rings visible on their face. Mm. So they'd hit them so many times you could see their rings. <sighs> In Romania, this behavior was deemed acceptable. In fact, their fellow coach even said that he did actually report them once or twice for the violence that they incurred on these little girls. And Romanian authorities were like, no, that's how you train kids. It's fine. I don't know what you're talking about. In the United States, they just kept it a secret. Because Bella made winners, and the United States wanted winners. Horrible. Yep. Retired gymnast and author Jennifer Say said, quote, The standard methodology when coaching elite gymnastics was cruelty. You could be as cruel as you needed to be to get what you needed out of your athlete. And this is around the time when they start referring to gymnasts more like products than they are people. Nadia Kolmanich was referred to as Romania's most valuable product. No, she's a little girl. Right. Bella's methods, though, became like the method. Every other gym that wanted elite gymnasts adopted these exact same methods. If you wanted a winner, you were cruel and controlling. End of sentence. The third element in this whole nightmare that really creates a perfect storm is that during this time, a shift was happening in USAG leadership. The organization was slowly promoting marketing professionals professionals into high-ranking positions. So they're no longer people that know anything about the sport. I don't know if they ever were. Or even lawyers. They're they're business marketing people. Right. White men, obviously. Who would see dollar signs all over these little gymnasts and rake in the sponsorships, creating the image that we all carry of female gymnasts to this day. And this is why America was perfect. Because America teaches people to smile. Mm-hmm. We know the value of looking like you're having a good time, the value of appearances, making sure everybody knows how great you are. 
So for these little girls to go out in front of an audience, they're going to look amazing. Right. They're We're really not, good at selling ourselves. We sure are. The vet, the best, I would venture to say. Mm-hmm. The best at looking happy <laughs> while we're miserable. Yes. So good. <laughs> good job, America. Leading brands wanted these little girls to sell their products. They had endorsements from McDonald's and Coca-Cola and Kellogg's. Um, a heroic attitude of win at any cost had also come into play, which you said is commonplace with athletes. The coaches expected these little girls to work injured. And a new concept we now know as athletic Darwinism became the norm. So what this means is that if you show any weakness, you're out. Get the fuck out of my gym. You broke your leg? Get the fuck out of my gym. There is a line out the door to replace you. So the strongest would be who survived. And anybody else in the wake of that, you're just shit out of luck. If you show weakness, you're out. The organization also expected them to deliver no matter what. Suddenly, these girls, as people and their well-being, is completely out of the mix. Between marketing professionals who are making billions of dollars on their image and this image of them being these, like, all-American girls who achieve so highly and coaches who don't give a shit about them and just torture them into achieving, where, where, where are the girls? What's left of them? Right. So this all came to head in the 90s when Bella Caroli produced the most famous champions the world had ever known— I think they were both in the 1992 and 96 Olympics, but mm-hmm. I'm not sure. Definitely 96. Um, and this is when Steve Penny also took over the USAG. Steve Penny coming from United States Cycling, which he had also gotten into, like, the Lance Armstrong, super famous, wear a wristband era. Oh, okay. Thank you, Steve Penny. Okay. So he's good at making people look mm-hmm. at a certain sport. Penny took over the USAG, and Bella Caroli led the Olympics with the Magnificent Seven. This was Shannon Miller, Dominique Bocciano, Dominique Dawes, Carrie Strug, Amy Chow, Amanda Borden, and J.C. Phelps. I, I will never, ever forget Carrie Strug at that Olympics Mm-mm. when she injured her ankle so badly and then, had, and then performed perfectly on it. Right. Do you remember, like, do you just remember looking at that and being like, wow, what a hero? Of course, yeah. I look at it now, and all I can think of is look at her face. Face. Well, she's such a tiny little person. And she's in so much pain, and her coach is screaming at her, you can do it, which is not a motivator when you see it from the other side as much as that is a terrifying order. Mm-hmm. She had, she didn't, she couldn't do it. She had to do it. She had mm-hmm. no choice. Then she looked so miserable on, the, like, the medal Oh, platform. and she was, like, winning her medal, and she was up there, like, holding back tears. Yeah, and they were like, look at her cry. She's so proud. And just, like, and now I'm like, oh, my God. She and then Larry so Nasser takes her off. Whoa. Mm-hmm. Because during this time, Larry Nasser was also hired by the Carolis as the national team's doctor. Mm-hmm. And he wasn't even getting paid a salary for it. No, he was just volunteering, La- right? Larry Nasser donated his time and, like, all of his time. Mm-hmm. Because he was gross, getting his own way. Yeah, exactly. So now we're in the mid-90s. Leslie, why don't we like take a little break? Let's let's talk about this time period. Tell us why these girls maybe were so – what do we think of them? Why were they popular? What's happening? Okay. So the most talked about mobile phone of 1996 oh. was the Motorola StarTac. I had one of those. It was the world's smallest and latest mobile phone to date. It was marketed as a wearable. They were flippy. So if you had one, you had the belt clip for it, and you wore it with pride. I don't think I did. Maybe not you. No. You might have, like, had your, like, little pocket. I had purses and stuff. Purses, yeah. Your your checkbook clutch. Yeah. (laughs) 
Uh, we were introduced to the Spice Girls as they hit number one with Wannabe. Jay-Z and Backstreet Boys also made their debut. Mm-hmm. It was early days for the internet, and if you were online at all, you were probably using Netscape Navigator browser. Oh my god, yes! I remember Netscape! <laughs> oh man, taking me back. A search tool called Google started indexing the web, but we all thought asking Jeeves was superior. Oh my god, yes, gas Jeeves. <laughs> Parents were actually okay with taking you to McDonald's because the Happy Meals had miniature T.Y. Beanie Babies, Ugh. and those were going to be worth millions one day. Yes, save your Beanie Babies. They're and also, worth- Olympians eat McDonald's, so it's You healthy. do say that every time. <laughs> Bella Caroli had uh, the McDonald's logo on his sleeve. Yeah. <laughs> if the Olympians do. There you go. <laughs> um, Life was Nintendo 64 and Tamagotchis. We have two of them in a drawer in my house right now. So, yes. <laughs> Starting your school year off with Lisa Frank, everything was yes. key. <laughs> Love me some Lisa Frank. Yes. Alanis Morissette's Jagged Little Pill was the best-selling album of the year. So, like, now a musical. Super strong for women. We said goodbye to the Fresh Prince of Bel-Air Ugh. and the Avengers of Pete and Pete this year. Aw, Pete and Pete. But we were introduced to Keenan and Kel, Blue's Clues, and Hey Arnold. So that's All exciting. All good. <laughs> And Nickelodeon was the most watched basic cable channel at the time. Yeah, it's good. Wild. It was a lot of good shows. Still good now. TV shows and movies were starting to get more female protagonists. Good. Too, which was exciting. Um, movies like Harriet the Spy, which I took my friends to for my birthday. So fun. And Matilda did better in the box offices than film executives predicted. They were like, like th- these are just for little girls. Nobody else wants to see them. But they were very popular. Matilda, also a musical, which leads me to believe they should make Harriet the Spy the musical. Ooh. That would be so good. It'd be so fun. Her just like... We sh- we, we're going to make that musical. Yes. So Nobody so else. Trademark. Good. Don't do it. Nope, nope. <laughs> now and Then and the Babysitter's Club had just come out the year earlier, but were being watched most almost daily by young girls. Oh, my God. Point. Now and Then. And now and Then, Devin Sawa was a good Devin yes. Sawa. Oh, yeah. Mm-hmm. That's my Devin Sawa. <laughs> yeah. Not Idle Hands, no. Devin Sawa. <laughs> and Casper. Oh, that's a good Devin Sawa, too. Yeah. And on TV, preteens and teens had shows like Sabrina, The Teenage Witch, The Secret World of Alex Mack, Moesha, Sister, Sister, and more. So there was a lot of shows. I liked all those shows. Yeah, there were so many. I just remember this time as being, so obviously we always talk about the Olsen twins. Obviously. So there was a strong female character I could watch on there, but that was also a show with like three young girls That's true. on it that we got to watch grow up. Mm-hmm. So I got to learn a lot about growing up and my adolescence and then what I might be looking forward to as a teen. In the dead mom society or whatever. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> um, but there were just, I remember there being so many shows of characters that I was like, oh, I relate to these people. And it's not, I don't have to pick out the boy that I feel like I'm most like. I can actually pick out the girls yeah. that I feel like I'm most like. Or that it was nice to see like a tomboy character that was also girly. So I knew that that was possible. Because I didn't, it never felt like that was true. I either had to be a girl or, like, one of the guys. I didn't know yeah. how to, like, mix them. So that was that was always fun. Way to go, 90s. Do you want to do a quiz? I don't know. We don't have to do it. I'll save it. We'll do another. We'll 90s. do it for the patrons. Okay. Patrons cool. are going to get a 90s music quiz. So if you're a patron, look for that. If you're not a patron, be a patron. Are you going to let people know that? Yeah, I'm selling it right in the middle okay. of the episode. <laughs> All right, guys. I have a planned musical quiz for Holly, but we're going to save it for the patrons. Yeah. That was the 90s for me. Yeah. 
And also, okay, so I was a little girl at this point, and I fully remember everything about these gymnasts. Yeah, and, no, I do too. They were a big deal. Yeah, and I, I like remember practicing at recess and doing like the little hand lift mm-hmm. every time, doing my cartwheels and then like landing like they would. Oh, I loved it. We had like posters of them in their room and stuff. Mm-hmm. They were like a very big deal. Yeah, I still do that land lift. Like if I jump off the bed, like like when I'm getting out of bed in oh the morning, God. sometimes and I land normally. <laughs> I just love that you have to jump out of your bed because it's that high off the ground for you. And then you stick the landing. Yeah, and I stick it and I throw my arms up and I'm like, got it. <laughs> yes, queen. And that's a good way to start your day. Yeah. Just feeling that power. Yeah. Do it tomorrow. And then I'm like, oh, my ankles. <laughs> oh, no. Then you say, you can't do it. <laughs> no, don't say that. We don't no. approve of him. Anyway, so now it's the mid-90s and the precedent for elite female gymnasts is set. So now we have arrived at children competing. We know how we got there. That answers one question. We also know that white men ran everything. So, of course, they would want to hire white male doctors because like, likes, like, that's who they knew and trusted. That were, those were their friends. So, of course, they're going to give them those positions. And also Larry Nasser volunteered to do it for free. So, of course, they're going to accept that guy. USAG also looked for medical professionals who delivered the quickest turnaround, as we mentioned before. Get them back on the floor as quick as possible. They were not looking for the girls' safety and comfort. They were looking to get the most out of their product. The team's training has evolved into essentially the same atmosphere as a cult. It employs the principles of operant conditioning to keep these young girls at a maximum level of obedience. They are terrified, starving, and exhausted. Coaches control every single piece of their survival, their food, their shelter, their health, their sleep, their contact with their family, everything. That is a cult! Yeah. That is exactly what we say when we are describing a cult. Isolation, control. The only thing they're missing is the financial aspect of it where a cult demands your money. They're kids. They don't have money to begin with. So that doesn't enter into the equation. No, but they are the product and they're getting money from other people. to. But they're not touching it while they're at the ranch. Yeah. Yeah, true. They live in an environment of constant cruelty where injuries are to be ignored and perfection is demanded with the threat of violence. These girls are in constant pain but are expected to bear it and keep moving. So who can they possibly turn to? Any friendly face they can find, that's who. And Larry Nasser saw this opportunity and pounced. Quote, he was awesome, and that's why we loved him, one gymnast said of Larry. So a brief history on Larry Nasser. Now we're going to get his, like, Wikipedia resume because I don't, I have no desire to know more about him than I have to. Larry Nasser was born in Farmington Hills, Michigan. He began working as a student athletic trainer for the women's gymnastics team at North Farmington High School at age 15 in 1978 on the recommendation of his older brother, who was the trainer at the school before him. Mm. So his brother was like, do this. Larry graduated from North Farmington High School in 1981. He started kinesiology at the University of Michigan, so there's his first degree, Mm -hmm. where he earned his undergraduate degree in 1985. During this time, he worked for the university's football and track and field teams. Larry Nasser began working as an athletic trainer for the USA Gymnastics National Team in 1986. And in 1988, Larry Nasser began working with John Geddert at Twistars. This is the guy that's the head of Twistars Gym. One of the gymnasts called him, quote, the devil. He said he was Satan. Oh, my God. Yeah. They were like, who's John Geddert? And she was like, Satan. He's the Satan. He's the worst man in the world. He was a coach that was very similar to Bella Caroli, except for even meaner. Mm. He's the one that said, get the fuck out of my gym. Okay. Real nice. This is a, and Twisters is like a elite gymnastics training club. So they produced a lot of Olympians. 
1993, Nasser graduated from the Michigan State University College of Osteopathic Medicine as a doctor of osteopathic medicine. So again, this is, I believe, like a chiropractor. Mm. He completed his residency training in family practice at St. Lawrence Hospital before completing a fellowship in sports medicine in 1997. Okay. So he also has that... Sports medicine, medicine, mm, going mm-hmm. for him. Larry married Stephanie Lynn Anderson on October 19th, 1996, and they have two daughters and a son. He began working as an assistant professor at MSU's Department of Family and Community Medicine in the College of Human Medicine in 1997, where he earned $100,000 a year in 1997. So that's like $4 billion a year right now. Now, mind you, he completed his fellowship at sports, in sports medicine in 1997, but started working with the gymnastics national team, the USA Gymnastics National Team, in 1986. That's before he's a doctor, technically. Okay. Larry is listed as a co-author on at least six research papers on the treatment of gymnastics injuries. Don't listen to what Larry says. He served as the national medical coordinator for the USA Gymnastics from 1996 until 2014. Outwardly, Larry Nasser was a great guy. Funny, caring, he donated his time to charities and volunteered for the USAG for 29 years. Larry never even collected a salary, as we said. He was a friend to the girls, their family away from home. Larry would sneak them food and candy because he knew they were starving at the Corolli Ranch. He let them use his cell phone to call their parents and would later friend them on social media when that became a thing. He was friends with all of them and would always, there's a lot of girls that say like, He commented on all of my Instagram posts. He was very active on my Facebook page. One girl said he texted her every single day. He was in their lives. He knew what was going on in their lives. He introduced these girls to his family. Rachel Denhollander at one point says that he brought his newborn daughter into one of her treatments so that she could hold the baby because he knew she loved babies. And that was like part of how he got her to trust him. Oh my God. Yeah. Larry groomed these girls. With kindness, that's the only thing you can call it, was grooming. He was their only port in the gymnastics storm, and he was abusing every single one of them. And not just the USAG elite gymnasts. Oh no, a great many of his victims were from MSU and Twistar's gym. Larry not only groomed the gymnasts, but also their parents. They say that Larry was their girl's only advocate. They saw him as a knight in shining armor. They felt comforted that he was there to protect them. They were so grateful there was a doctor on staff because their little girls were being worked so hard. And Larry was so funny and kind and in touch all the time. One mother called him the guardian angel of USA Gymnastics. Oh my God. Larry sought out the same environment time and time again. He set his trap and went to work. So now we're back in 2016. We know the how and the why, but only a fraction of the who and what. The Indie Star ran its first article directly on Larry Nasser and Rachel Denhollander um, exposing his methods, as well as the stance by all the organizations that worked with him, which was to bury the abuse and never report it in September of 2016. And if they thought the reports came in fast and furious before, well, the Indie Star was in for quite a surprise. Retired gymnasts and dancers alike came out of the woodwork to tell the Indy Star about their experiences with Larry and also MSU softball players and track stars. Yeah, I was I was wondering about that. Too. Yeah, there's some of them too. Not as many. He mm-hmm. really he really got in there with gymnasts, but there is one pretty famous case of a softball player that came forward and reported him too. Right. So at this point, Rachel Den Hollander had filed a Title IX report against Larry. 
Title IX requires schools to adopt and publish grievance procedures for students to file complaints of sex discrimination, including complaints of sexual harassment or sexual violence. So USAJ would kind of file under the same thing as a school at this point. Mm -hmm. After this article ran, Maggie Nichols, who we mentioned very early on, her, uh, her mother contacted the attorney that she read had been representing Jamie Dancher, John Manley, as she read that he was helping victims. And here is where all the links in the chain meet up. Maggie Nichols was an Olympic hopeful gymnast. She came up alongside Simone Biles and was said to be the next in line for her titles. Maggie is a phenomenal gymnast and quickly rose in the ranks, reaching elite level shortly after her 10th birthday. She made the national team at 15, and she was sent to the monthly cl clinics at the Caroli Ranch. Maggie had numerous injuries and saw Larry often. He did what he usually did to girls, and one day, Maggie asked a fellow gymnast about it. Maggie's coach overheard this conversation and called Maggie's mother. And already the chain of custody on this information is flawed. Maggie's coach, under Texas state law, should have gone right to the police. That's an immediate report. But she didn't. Maggie's mother reported, reported the incident then to the head of the women's program for the USAG, Rhonda Fain, who should have reported it to the police, mm -hmm. but didn't. Rhonda Fain, who uh, reported to organization president Steve Penny, who should have reported it to the police, but didn't. Steve Penny called Maggie's mother and told her that Maggie would be taken care of and the organization would take care of Larry as well. And he called her, and there's a very specific quote in Athlete A where Maggie Nichols' mother said, Steve Penny called her and said, I hear you have a concern. Right. N no, they don't have a concern. They have a lawsuit. Right. Steve Penny did not report to the police. He called in a specialist for workplace sexual harassment issues who interviewed a bunch of the girls. Now, some of the girls came forward to talk about Larry's longstanding abuse both in the gym there and overseas. This sexual abuse or sexual harassment expert told Steve Penny that he had a major problem. Mm. And then Steve Penny did nothing for five weeks. Then he reported the incident eventually to the FBI, which sounds like he did a good job, but just wait. Mm -hmm. He also took time to speak to people at the FBI that he had previous relationships with. Mm. And he went so far as to offer them one of them a job. And so the FBI did nothing, and 13 months passed. 13 months where Larry Nasser continued to abuse those girls. 13 months where the organization knew exactly what was happening blow by blow and did nothing. During and those 13 months where the parents thought that there was yes, an investigation. They thought underway. the FBI was after it. They mm -hmm. weren't, they just dropped it. During those 13 months, Maggie Nichols sustained a knee injury, which she managed to come back from. But Marta Caroli used that as a reason to exclude her from the 2016 Olympic team. Maggie and her family were completely blackballed. She came in sixth in Olympic trials. The five gymnasts ahead of her were chosen for the team, and the three under her were given alternate status, but Maggie was sent home with nothing. She was punished for telling the truth. She had also planned to be in an endorsement with Simone Biles, which they told her she couldn't do. Mm -hmm. All press had been taken off her, and anything that was that any of her, like, accomplishments had been completely deleted. The public learned about Larry Nasser in 2016, but the USAG had known for a lot longer. MSU has a very similar story. Several of them, actually. Only their first one happened in 1997. Larissa Boyce, a gymnast, reported Larry to MSU coach Kathy 
Oh, I forget how to pronounce her last name. Again, I don't care. Clagus? I don't know. She, she's awful. And went on to tell her, this Kathy woman went on to tell her that she simply didn't understand her experience. She said that at 15, she didn't know what vaginal penetration was. She just like thought that anything around her crotch was inside her vagina and she didn't know what it actually felt for something to be inside her vagina. Mm. What? You're a woman. You're also a woman. Then Kathy kept Larissa Boyce in her office and paraded in a bunch of older gymnasts and said, did he do this to you? See, you're crazy. You don't know. It's real medical treatment. Ew. And just embarrassed her and gaslit her. Then Kathy told Larissa that if she did continue with this, she might ruin Larry's life and possibly her own as well. There would be serious consequences for reporting such an action. Nope. In the end, instead of Kathy telling Larissa's mother, she told Larry instead, and Larry confronted Larissa in one of her treatment appointments. He made her feel awful, and she apologized for reporting him. And then he went on to abuse her for four more years. Larissa wasn't alone either. Amanda Thomas-Show had filed a Title IX complaint about Larry in 2014 when he tried to penetrate her with her finger with his finger during a treatment. But she was older, and she knew what was happening was wrong. Mm -hmm. And so as soon as he tried to do this, she jumped and pushed Larry off her. In doing so, she noticed that he leapt out of her sight and hid his erection, which Amanda, being older, knew what that was. Mm -hmm. And Kathy Clegg told Amanda the same thing. She said, you don't know what penetration is. You just thought because he was near your vagina, he was in your vagina, but he really wasn't. <sighs> mm -hmm. So, like, somebody just, like, touching the inside of your leg is, like, exactly the same as being fingered. Right? Exactly the same. It's the same. Um, so, this, she was also told that this was valid medical treatment she received and that she needed to shut her mouth. But why... I don't understand why anybody is protecting Larry. Because if they reveal him, they tarnish their own reputation. It's just like Jerry Sandusky, who I know people are very sensitive about. They shouldn't be because he's a piece of shit, but whatever. In 2015, after Maggie Nichols came forward, Larry was allowed to peacefully retire from the USAG to give himself time to concentrate on his local school board and private treatment sessions. In his basement. I hate this. No consequences. Moving on. But not this time. The Indie Star uncovered emails between Larry, Steve Penny, and Bella Caroli detailing their cover-up of his abuse. The fact that he had been given conditions to work under before, conditions he willfully ignored, was also included in these emails. He was given conditions at Michigan State as well that were documented. Larry was not supposed to be alone with any of the girls at MSU after 2014 when Amanda Tomaschow filed a, a, a Title IX. They said, you can't be alone with the girls. Someone else has to be in the room. You have to have conformed, informed consent from the girls. You have to explain everything you do, and you have to wear fucking gloves, you filthy maniac. Right. But no one checked on that. I'm so mad. So, okay, if there are accusations that they can't prove, right, but if they're saying to this person, like, you need to wear gloves, we realize you're not wearing gloves, or mm -hmm. you're doing these procedures, no. He's out. He's gone. I know. That's a filthy He has animal. fucking been in school for how long? Mm hmm He always wear gloves. Mm-hmm. If my doctor ever did anything without a glove on. I <laughs> can't. I would lose my whole mind. He wasn't supposed to be alone with the girls at USAG either after right. 2014. And he wasn't supposed, and he was supposed to wear gloves, and he was supposed to have informed consent, and he was supposed to have someone else in the room. Nobody checked on any of these practices. They said, well, we told him that's enough. Of course, he didn't do any of them. None of this even slowed him down a little. 
So of the few police officers who actually did interrogate Larry, because there are, you know, lawsuits against him, no police officer had taken Larry as a serious predator, and no prosecutor would agree to take on the case against him. They didn't want to go up against these powerful businesses. Until 2016, when Detective Andrea Munford brought him in for the most most painful interrogation I have ever watched. And I watched the whole tape. Mm-hmm. It's 40 minutes long. Yeah. It is terrible. Rachel Den Hollander named one of her daughters um, after Andrea Munford, too. She gave her a middle name. I love that. I love it, too. So th- this terrible interrogation, what happens during it is that Larry tries to steamroll the situation with a barrage of insane medical terms. Insane. None of that. He just starts listing anatomy, like mm-hmm. just list, lists it. But Detective Munford wouldn't have it. Like, she's like, I know what this guy's doing. Well, because he would also be like, mm, this is, like, boring you, I'm sure. Like, you don't really understand yeah, it. So, did. like, I can just kind of go past it. And she's like, no, tell me at all. Keep going. I want to know what you were also, doing. Also, she's the first female investigator in this. The yeah. last several that he has had to talk to and give the exact same story to were all males. Whether that that shouldn't make a difference, but. But I'm sure it did. Mm-hmm. I'm sure it did. He went so far as to tell Detective Munford a woman, that she wouldn't know what a pelvic floor was. Mm-hmm. You wouldn't know what that is. Didn't she have him bring in something? like? Oh, I don't remember. There's a lot of videos remember, of him manipulating yeah. a, a, like, a pelvis bone. Uh, yeah. Where he's like going in, being like, you have to go inside to touch this part. You're like, no, you fucking don't, Larry. Yeah. <sighs> never yeah. never has man mansplaining been so blatant and offensive. In this interrogation, he does, though, admit to penetrating these girls. Mm-hmm. A confession he will later try to go back on, but it's too late. He full, he fully confessed. Oh, he does. She's like, got, yes, I do this. She got him so good. Oh, she did. She kept her cool. She, but she also was like, calm. oh, yes, tell me about your doctor things, you big doctor. Mm-hmm. So what do, you, what do you do there? Oh, oh. how helpful. Oh. Look at you, Larry. And then later she's like, do you see how that's weird? Yeah. <laughs> You're fucking rapist, Larry. Get the hell out of here. So then... After this confession, prosecutor Andrea Povolitis agrees to take the case. Another woman. Mm-hmm. Also, uh, Larry's lawyer is a woman. Mm-hmm. She is awful. The investigation is slow going to start. There are so many things to wade through. There are so many reports, so much red tape. Steve Penny has all the reports locked up in a cabinet. We've talked about that before. And this is, they're kind of trying to wade through it until Detective Munford gets a call from Larry's neighbors. They tell her that their daughter, Kyle, had been abused by Larry from the age of 6 to 16 in his basement. And then it hits. First of all, this is the first non-medically explained away abuse. Mm. He can't say that he was treating this girl because he wasn't. Second, there were other reports of private treatment occurring in his basement. So the basement starts to raise eyebrows. And this report is enough to get a search warrant for Larry Nasser's home. I love this. I know. When Detective Munford arrives, she sees the trash on the curb. After finding nothing in the house, she instructs, instructs her detectives to go through Larry's trash. And there, they find two hard drives with his name on them in Sharpie. What a fucking idiot. He's like, these are Larry Nassar. And he left them intact. Yeah. He didn't, like, smash them. He just put them in the trash. I'm so glad that he's an idiot. Yeah. These hard drives contained 37,000 pieces of child pornography. Ooh. Mm-hmm. It is suspected that some of which are videos of him treating gymnasts. Larry's sh- fucking lawyer will go on to say, quote, that's not that much in cases like this. What? The prosecutor was like, that's an astronomical amount. She's like, not really. <gasps> I 
I was done with humanity. I like threw my computer. I couldn't handle it. <laughs> I mean, it was all she had. She's just throwing things. She looks things. like a deer in headlights the whole time. Yeah. She's like, I don't want to answer that question. Of course not. Which is what Steve Penny goes on to do too. Oh, <sighs> man. I mean, I don't know if we should feel bad. Maybe we should know more about her story to be Maybe. like, was well, she thrown this case? And she was like, this will get you. If you get, if you take this case, you'll get a really good one the next time, hun. I mean, look at the young lawyer who defended Ted Bundy and that like destroyed her career because she could not go on to, to look at reprehensible people anymore. Right. She was like, I'm going to save this man from the death penalty. He's innocent. And then through her investigation, she was like, oh, no, I have to defend a monster now. So Larry has no real defense at this point. It's 37,000 images on hard drives with his name on them. Neither mine. They might as well have been in a Lisa Frank folder. <laughs> and the proof is in the pudding. So the legal team strike a plea bargain. Larry, Larry will plead guilty to the possession of child pornography, seven counts of sexual abuse, willfully attempting to destroy evidence, and several other charges to avoid being charged with the federal offense of going overseas with the attempt to intent to abuse. And this isn't even the civil lawsuit. This is just Michigan State. The civil lawsuit is the one where John Manley handles things, and that's a completely, he gets sentenced even more over there. So the judge and prosecutor then agree to this plea deal on the condition that every victim be given the opportunity to make a statement and that Larry would have to listen to them all. At first, 88 girls asked to come forward, and only a few of them wanted to be publicly identified. But while they were in court, one by one, they all came up and agreed to be publicly identified because one was empowered by the next and empowered by the next. And in the end, 156 women gave their statements on the record as who they were. I just got chills. And I'm like, no. <laughs> they just like, they were such a, a, a unit. They all came together so intensely. Once they were in court, they were like, no, I, I, we all have to do this. Mm-hmm. It's amazing. And I love the lawyer in the documentary. She was so patient and oh, just yeah. so good. The prosecutor is great. And the, I love this judge more than I've ever loved a judge in any other case. And you'll get to why in a second. First of all, she's like fucking amazing, beautiful, badass. I'll get to her in a second. Perhaps the most heartbreaking victim impact statement of the lot was that of Larry's neighbor, Kyle who told the story of how Larry exposed himself to her in his basement when she was six years old. She says that, quote, at the time she loved Clifford the Big Red Dog and still had her baby teeth. He progressed to masturbating in front of her and then rubbing his erect penis on her feet and penetrating her with his fingers. When she was 12, Kyle told her parents that when Larry rubbed her feet, he used his penis. So they went to confront Larry and chose to believe him. How would a six-year-old know that? This is a 12-year-old now. It went on for six oh, years. okay. She had 12, she told them. Oh, and they 12. went and said to Larry, like, what did you do? And he's like, nothing. I never did anything. And they said, how fucking dare you say that about your neighbor? <sighs> and this destroyed Kyle's relationship with her parents, obviously. She went through, like, a really hard time. Her father was so angry at her. He told her, like, all the time that she should apologize to Larry. She was trying to ruin Larry's life. And he still forced her to interact with him all the time. And so for a few more years, Larry continued to abuse her after she told her parents he was doing it and they were making her be around him. When the abuse hit the news and Kyle's father finally realized that he had been wrong, 
that he had led his daughter into the lion's den for four more years after she told him that she was being abused, the situation became too much for him to bear, and he took his own life. So sad. On the second day of victim impact statements, because they went on for seven, there were that many, Larry Nasser wrote a letter to the judge blaming his victims and claiming that he was being, like, slandered, like it, everything was unfair, and that the judge was doing this because she wanted media attention on herself. She wanted the cameras in the courtroom to be on her because when they were on the girls, who we also talked about how they were like attention hungry, wanting to be in the news, the cameras were also on the judge. Now, previously, when this first came out, the internet also went after those gymnasts like crazy. Mm -hmm. People wanted to support Larry Nassar right away, including his victims, because they didn't, one of them said, and I didn't write down this quote, she said, when I found out what happened, I didn't think, oh, I can't, I can't believe this happened. She thought, I can't believe it was Larry or something. Like she like, she like didn't want to believe it was her friend, but she didn't have a hard time believing it had happened. Mm-hmm. It was like a very weird thing. And, the, and they wanted to defend him because they didn't realize what had happened to him had been abuse. Right. And the comments online to those gymnasts were very much like, oh, is it rape if you asked for it? Look how hot they are. I would have done the same thing. It's, it's a nightmare. It was a nightmare. They all went through. So Larry submits this letter to the judge saying everything is unfair, and she reads it and then seals it. She goes, I don't want these women to read this right now. That's terrible. She's, again, wait, powerful badass, the best thing in the world. Then she keeps going. She's like, no, sorry, keep going. You have to sit and take this, all of this, and you will continue to do so. So after all of the women finally speak, Rachel Den Hollander speaking last, and her, God, read her whole statement, please. Larry gave a brief statement before his sentencing, and he did this weird thing where he would spin around to look at the victims in the courtroom in the eye, and the judge cut onto this, and she was just like, oh, we can't hear you when you move your mouth away from the microphone. Stop fucking looking at those girls. And then after this, jo- Judge Rosemary Aquilina knew exactly what she was looking at. She knew that Larry's crocodile tears didn't mean anything. She knew that he was unrepentant. And right before sentencing him, she chose to reopen that letter he wrote and read the things he had said about those women right after he pretended he was apologizing. He was completely repentant, saying, quote, hell hath no fury like a woman scorned. His victims all went from sad to mad very quickly. When all is said and done, Judge Rosemary Aquilina found Larry guilty and sentenced him to a combined total of 125 years in prison for his crimes. Quote, I am signing your death warrant, she said, throwing the letter on her desk in front of her as she finished. Fucking love her. She just nailed, oh my God, it was amazing to see. And if you have the chance to watch any footage in that courtroom, if you have the stamina to do it, what those women do is amazing. The judge calls Rachel Denhollander a five-star general. Mm. She, she's amazing. So here's the fallout for the rest of these fucking clowns. On October 17th, 2018, former USAG CEO Steve Penny was arrested on charges of evidence tampering in the Larry Nassar case. He was accused of removing documents linked to the Nassar sexual abuse case from the Caroli Ranch Gymnastics Facility in Texas. On October 29th of 2018, Steve Penny entered a plea of not guilty. 
Also, in his initial sentencing, they asked or like his questioning. They were asking him about his involvement or what he knew, asking him about Larry. He pled the fifth every time. He just stood there and said, I would like to answer your question, but I have been advised to invoke the Fifth Amendment. And he cowardly wouldn't say a fucking word. Mm-hmm. On November 20th, 2018, former Michigan State University President Luanna Simon was charged with two felonies and two misdemeanor counts for lying to the police. She is accused of the of falsely telling investigators that she did not know the, t- the nature of a Title IX complaint against Nasser in 2014. She could face up to four years in prison on each felony charge. On October 29, 2019, Eaton County District Court Judge Julie Reinecke ruled that there was sufficient evidence to bind Simon over for trial in Eaton County Circuit Court. On May 13, 2020, Eaton County Judge John Moore dismissed the charges against Simon, which sucks because she's an evil woman. The Michigan Attorney General's office said it plans to appeal. Hmm. Kathy Clegas, Kegels, whatever we're going to call her. Have that attached to your name for the rest of your life. In August of 2018, Kathy, a former Michigan State University gymnastics coach, was charged with one felony count and one misdemeanor count of lying to the police about her early knowledge of sexual abuse allegations against Larry Nassar, obviously. Her trial began in February of 2020, and she was found guilty on two counts of lying to the police and faces up to four years in prison. Her sentencing was set for April 18th, 2020, but was rescheduled to July 15th of that year because covid uh, however, the sentencing was again delayed, all that stuff. On August 4th, Kit Clegas was sentenced to 90 days in jail and 18 months of probation. Not enough, in my opinion. Luanna Simon, the president of Michigan, or yeah, the president of Michigan State University, also lost her job. I don't know if I get to that or not. On February 25th of 2021, John Geddert, the head of the 2012 USA Women's Olympic Gymnastics team and the guy that owned Twist Stars Gym, you know, Satan, was charged with multiple felonies, including 20 counts of human trafficking and forced labor, one count of first-degree sexual assault and one count of second-degree sexual assault on his own, racketeering and lying to a police officer. Getter died by suicide shortly after his charges were announced to the public. Goodbye. Bye-bye-bye. So he's a story in and of itself, but I don't have enough time this week. In January of 2018, USAG officially cut ties with the Caroli Ranch. Bella and Marta Caroli are still possibly facing charges. A lot of people rightly think that they knew exactly what was going on and were feeding girls to Larry Nasser basically, because he would give them the results they wanted and put them, say they were safe to compete immediately after they were injured. So they severed ties with the Caroli Ranch. Later that month, the Caroli Ranch announced on its website that the facility had permanently closed. On January 22nd, 2018, three members of the USAG Board of Directors resigned. Following Larry's sentencing on January 24th, 2018, the United States Olympic Committee pushed an open letter calling for the resignations of the remaining USAG Board of Directors. The USOC also announced that it was launching a third-party investigation into the whole affair. On January 31st, the USAG received resignations from every member of its Board of Directors. The whole board is gone. Wow. Mm-hmm. On May 16, 2018, it was reported that Michigan State University and Larry Nassar's victims reached a $500 million settlement. The United States Congress responded to the sexual abuse claims made against Nassar and also to claims made against personnel who were involved with the USA Swimming and USA Taekwondo. United States Senator Dianne Feinstein introduced a bill to require national governing body members overseeing Olympic sports to immediately report sexual assault allegations 
to law enforcement or designated child welfare agencies. Not that the state laws weren't already there because they were. Former gymnasts Dominique Mucianu, Jamie Dancher, and Jessica Howard testified at a Senate Judiciary Committee hearing on March 28, 2017 concerning this bill. Rick Adams, Chief of Paralympic Sports for the United States Olympic Committee and the head of the Organizational Development for the NGB stated to all at the hearing, quote, we do take responsibility and we apologize to any young athlete who has ever faced abuse. That's not enough. No. The USAG was asked to testify at the hearing, but declined. Hmm. As a direct result, the United States Center for Safe Sport was set up in 2017 under the auspices of Protecting Young Victims from Sexual Abuse and Safe Sport Authorization Act of 2017. Safe Sport is an organization that seeks to address the problems of sexual, sexual abuse of minors and amateur athletes in sports. Its primary focus, as to which it has exclusive jurisdiction, is to review allegations of sexual misconduct and to oppose sanctions up to lifetime banning, up to the lifetime banning of a person um, from involvement in all of Olympic sports. Okay. So we will also include a link to donate to Safe Sport if you guys would like to do so as well. We're going to make our own donation to Safe Sport. Um, they do really good work. Nice. They're who's around now to pr- protect these athletes. And that is, that is it. Wow. There is so much more. Yeah. But we have already gone for a very long time. <laughs> so toast. Yeah. Well, first to you, Holly. Thank you for getting <laughs> all of this information. This was a good episode. Oh, geez. Yeah. Thank you. To Rachel Denhollander. Mm-hmm. Who is the reason this came into the public eye, and Maggie Nichols, who filed the complaint that seemed to tip, tip the scales and is the reason why we know about the USA Gymnastics not report policies. Mm-hmm. I don't know if I mentioned this because there's so much work to all the stuff, but their, their literature says that when they receive a report of sexual abuse, They do not report it to the police unless the report is signed by a victim or a direct witness to the abuse. Mm -hmm. So the coach saying, I heard them talking about being molested by their doctor. The USAG's official policy was to not report that. However, that is in direct defiance of state laws. Right. So they have literature breaking the law. Right. Yeah, that's huge. Mm Mm-hmm. And one of the differences with Maggie in general, mm-hmm. like even for her, because her parents believe her right away. Oh, yeah. You know, which which is great. And But here's the main difference between her and some of the other girls on the USA yeah. Gymnastics is that she came in a little bit later to yeah. this team. And she had worked with other doctors previously that her main thing was that this was very new practicing for her. And she knew something was off right away. Mm -hmm. She tried to talk to some of the other girls, and they said, like, oh, this is normal. It's what he does. And she was like, but I don't think that that's right, and talked to her parents, who were also well aware of what other doctors have done with her. And she knew exactly. She she just knew because she She had other experiences, and a lot of these other young girls did not. What kills me is that one of the other gymnasts in the U.S., in the— HBO documentary says, like, I thought I was getting treatment. And other girls asked me, is this normal? I don't like it. Is it okay? And I said, yes, it is. Mm -hmm. Don't say anything. 
And she said, I, I'm the reason they didn't come forward. I told them not to. I told them it was okay. And this poor woman is tortured over it. Right. And it's not her fault. She no. didn't know. No. She didn't know. She thought it was okay. And for herself, she had to say she thought it was okay. Mm-hmm. Wild. Okay, yeah. so to Rachel, to Maggie, to... To all the gymnasts. To all the gymnasts. And athletes that suffered. Mm-hmm. And um, dancers. There were... The, the women yeah. that were treated in Larry Nasser's basement were predominantly dancers. Mm. They were local dancers that would see him privately for, like, quote-unquote, physical therapy or adjustments. And he would do the same thing to them every time he saw them. Right. So... To all of wow. all of the victims, mm-hmm. they are very many. Um, and then to the investigator yes. and the lawyer, the, mm-hmm. uh, what was her name? The detective is Andrea Mumford, mm-hmm. and we have so many names. I only read it, wrote it once. I think it's Angela Pavitis. I think her last name is Pavitis. I could have the first name wrong. I'm so sorry. You are such okay. a hero. So Andrea and Angela. I think so. Here's to them. They look so cute on their little couch together during the interview. They do look really cute on their little couch together. (laughs) They look like best friends I know. I mean, like, they went at it together, which I love. Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah. Do we have anybody else that we need to do We do. We have a new patron this (gasps) week. Who is it? Who is it? Who is it? Ashley Williamson. Cheers, Ashley Williamson. She is a best fiend forever. BFF? Yes, girl. I love it. So before we close it out, I just want to end with a quote from John Manley, the lawyer who represented Jamie Dancher and a bunch of Larry Nassar's victims in the civil suit. He said, quote, What people don't realize is that for almost every one of these girls, this is their first sexual experience. And when you take the ability to love or express love from somebody, take it away or damage it, it profoundly affects their psyche. At the end of the day, that's what he did. He stole that part of them, and they're all struggling to get it back. And most of them should never have met Larry Nasser. had the people in charge of him just done the right thing. Wow. And if we trusted the only kindness we saw in a sea of cruelty, we, we would, would be, be dead. dead. Thank you for listening to the We Would Be Dead podcast. Hit subscribe now to never miss an episode. Rate and review our show on iTunes. Follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at Would Be Dead Pod. And join our Facebook group to discuss the podcast and more. Mary Lou, you can do this. Mm.